0: Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's begin reading together at verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 4. We'll get into our study. Solomon writes, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they, are, that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. I'll read verse 5, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. You know, I was a new Christian. I was 20 years old. I'd come to faith in Christ. I began going to a church called Calvary Chapel there in Costa Mesa. There was only one. It was Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And it was uh, well known at that time as a kind of like a hippie haven. Pastor Chuck Smith had become famous for opening his doors to those that other doors were closed to, which were the hippie kids. Because hippie kids were the kinds of people at that time who had the um, reputation of being lazy and, and simply wanting to party, smoke, you know, smoke dope is what we used to call it, and to just drink. That's basically what we were known for. We were lazy, good-for-nothings in the sight of um, whom we used to refer to as the establishment those who were older than us. We were taught, you know, amongst ourselves uh, never to trust anyone over 30 and things like that. And so we were known for being rebels and all. And Pastor Chuck Smith had actually opened the doors to uh, to hippies, to young people like me. And, and as I've mentioned so many times, and even recently, you know, the first time I went in to a Calvary chapel, I had been drinking, I'd been smoking marijuana, you know, and that and I expected to be kicked out. And instead, I was actually... Uh, welcomed in uh, in a spirit not ever accepting my sin but in a spirit of accepting me as a person and for me that was amazing and also when I went to Calvary Chapel uh, I found a home and it was very relaxed the atmosphere was very relaxed if you ever read the distinctives of Calvary Chapel one of those that are referred to as a distinctive is a casual uh, way that we do service what you are used to now did not exist back in 1970 I, as a minister would be wearing a suit normally I, I would you know it was just that way that's the way everything was and it's not so much that it was bad it just was not appealing to people like me who didn't even wear shoes let alone slacks and even when I did wear slacks I went barefoot so uh, that was just me and and but there were quite a number of, of young people like me and so uh, when I went to Calvary I discovered that it had an atmos- atmosphere That was very welcoming and even festive in many ways. And so on uh, one occasion, when I first began to go to this this church, uh, somebody had brought a beach ball into the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary only sat a couple hundred people. We're talking about the very early days, and it was a small chapel at that time, long before they had the tent and before they had uh, built their main sanctuary that they now occupy. It was really a small place. It only sat a couple hundred people. And uh, they had actually taken the walls and had broken walls down and put glass there because there were so many kids and people showing up for church that they began to put the uh, loudspeakers, some speakers outside, and people would sit outside looking towards the interior at the platform area because they couldn't get in. People would be sitting all over the floors. It was totally illegal. And they were trying to reduce the stress. And so when I was going there, that's how it was. And so there were just nothing but a lot of young people and uh, a few of those would have been older parents and all. And here's somebody with a beach ball. And so they're bouncing it in the sanctuary. Worship has already ended. And they're waiting for the teacher to come up. And there's, and, and the ball comes in our direction. And you, know, you hit it like you're at a Dodger game. Never an angel game, a Dodger game. And, uh, <laughs> and as that was happening, the guys up in the front, the elders who were all of 19 or 20 years old. They were kids. I still remember the first real rebuke I ever got in church when one of them said, this is not a playground. This is a sanctuary. Would you please put that beach ball away? Now, you didn't get anybody standing up screaming, saying, legalist, would your grace, you know, and crying, weep out the door. We were convicted. We're convicted because he was right. This is a place where you enter in to be taught about God himself. What is it Solomon is saying in verse 1? Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. What that guy did was simply applied Scripture to that situation. Now, as we look at this, we need to begin by remembering that Solomon has been commenting up to this point, on the things that he has seen. And he's mentioned it as we've gone through the first four chapters. He mentions this. He's seen injustice. He has seen envy. He has seen loneliness. He's seen the transience of power and popularity. And as he's been going through the first few chapters, he concluded that life under the sun is filled with vanity. It's a grasping, he says, for the wind. And so as he's been speaking about what he has seen, he now has paid a visit to the temple. And as he went to the temple, he observed the worshipers. And as he was observing them, he could not help but notice that many who were there were not sincere believers. He noticed that they would offer sacrifices, but they didn't keep their vows to God. And he saw through their hypocrisy. He saw their hypocrisy, and he's pointing it out, but they did not seem to see it themselves. And they seemed to be oblivious to the fact that they were offending God. That's what he says in verse 1, and when he says at the end of that verse, they do not know that they do evil. They were oblivious to it. They weren't aware of it. And so he's, he's observing this, and as he observes this, he's moved to issue a warning. Notice what he says again, verse 1, walk prudently, When you go to the house of God, walk prudently is another way of saying, watch your step. Prudence simply speaks of uh, walking with wisdom. It speaks about being careful. Watch your step when you go to the house of God. In other words, we should never approach the worship of God in a careless fashion. Be cautious in your behavior as you approach God in worship. Now, obviously, we don't worship God at the temple in Jerusalem anymore. We never did, unless you're Jewish and all your ancestors did. But we don't worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. But we know that God is worshipped wherever we desire to worship Him because worship of God isn't restricted to one geographical place or or one building. Uh, There's an interesting uh, statement found in Acts 7, 48 through 50, where it says, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And so we know that the worship of God isn't restricted to one geographical place or building. We know that we assemble for worship with others. But the fact is, worship in and of itself is also simply a way of life. We, the Bible says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We worship God wherever we are. But when he says walk prudently, that's a way of saying prepare your heart. Prepare your heart, especially as we gather together to worship the Lord. We are to approach the worship of God carefully and not in a flippant manner. That's the right relationship between creature and creator, one of humility from the creature to the one who created him. Like it says in Psalm 144, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you think of him. I mean, we are insignificant. We are less than less. And yet you have considered us. And so he's saying, be careful when you go to worship the Lord. How does that apply to us? Well, let's say it's a a Saturday night, you know, or maybe even a Sunday morning. Let's start with Sunday morning, and it's Sunday morning. And in a lot of homes, there's a lot of activity. Getting, if you're married, and if you have children, there's a lot of activity. You can get your kids ready to go, and they're all combed up and dressed up, and you're getting yourself finalized, and you expect to be at the first service, and... And then you hear somebody say, oh, no, ah, you go in and somebody got some grape juice and they spilled it all over themselves and they're all messy and they can't go to church that way. So you say to your husband, honey, you shouldn't have spilled that grape juice on yourself going to take a shower. No, you look at the kids and you get uptight and or somebody you have kids little girls and you put little pigtails on them but they don't want them and they pull them off and you're trying to redo their I mean we've had four kids we know what it's like you want to get to church one thing after another or you're ironing at the last minute and now you've got nothing but stress and then you finally get into the car and when you expect it to be their first service you're now late for second because one thing after another so what do you do well I think that we can do things that might loosen some of that. Uh, It helps if we do practical things, and if we can get them out of the way early, that's always a wise thing to do. So uh, if you're going to go to church for Sunday morning, it's always good to prepare Saturday night. It's always a good thing to do that. You get the clothes ready ahead of time. You put the kids to bed on time. Uh, You organize uh, the time that it takes to get ready for church. You know how long it takes normally. You give yourself enough driving time to get there. You prepare your heart to worship in song. You come ready to hear. And and somebody says, oh, man, yeah, how would, you, know, you don't understand my situation. And I say, yes, thank you, Jesus, I don't. But I did at one time. And it was hard. And it could be hard because You've got all this activity and you can lose your joy. And as you're rolling up the driveway, coming on in, you can even be angry there. You know, there's more than one parent who's dropped their kids off at children's ministry with the idea that they're not going to take them home. (laughs) It can be hard. And so. It really is important, even on a Wednesday night and, and working and driving from wherever it is that you drive from work if you have if you're working, then you get home and you get ready, you, you eat your food quickly if you eat at all, you rush to get to church, you're already feeling a little stressed because you know it starts at seven, it's a little late and uh oh, and, and you come in and you're just tense, and, and, and we know that from the worship. worship team knows it takes you two or three songs to finally relax and say, okay, now I can worship because it's stressful, and we get it. I get it. So what do I do? You know, what have I done, and what do I do when I'm not teaching but I'm going somewhere? I prepare my heart. As I'm driving, I prepare my heart. I, I, I don't want to listen to anything. I just It's just me and the Lord, and I think. And I, and I talk and I talk to the Lord and I pray and I prepare my heart because in a moment I'm going to walk in, someone's going to divide the word and I want to receive what God has for me. But, but I can carry so many things in my mind. I've got a thousand, on, I got a thousand emails on my, on my uh, uh, mail right now, a thousand. And people say, I wrote you, how come you didn't write back? Well, you're probably amongst that thousand that I have sitting there. And that's not including Messenger and the other sources of things and phone calls. So I I got an idea of what it means to get cluttered, because I get cluttered, too. Because I have so many demands, so many conversations. As a pastor of this church, if I'm walking from point A to point B, there's very many conversations that can happen in between a 50-yard walk. One thing after another, I understand clutter, and I understand how I have to handle it and what I do is I take these things to the Lord, especially when I'm coming to receive from him. And that's basically what Solomon is saying. He's saying, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Make sure that you're walking carefully and not carelessly. Make sure that when you're going, you're going prepared to receive from God because that's the second thing he says, draw near to hear. When he says draw near to hear, that speaks of preparing your heart as you approach God God, uh, in order to hear his word, to hear him speak to us. Prepare your heart as you approach God's word to hear him speak. The word hear is a word that can be translated understand. It also can be spoken of as, as referring to that which is, or the one who is obedient. It speaks of discernment or perceiving something. To hear is to understand and obey. So when God's word is properly taught, It is God speaking through his word to his people. And by the way, that is something many people fail to understand. They very often will think, well, that person speaking there is simply his opinions that he's giving to us. Well, the bottom line is, if the word of God is rightly divided and being correctly presented, that's the word of the Lord. And that word that you're reading when it says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God, draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifices of fools, is God's word. That is God speaking to you. A lot of people don't understand that. So they say, well, Bible studies, they're just that guy talking. No, if he's rightly dividing and applying the word, it's God's word. And God, therefore, by his spirit is speaking to our hearts. That's why Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. That's why Paul said, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul was saying, Our preaching to you was not organized thoughts by some philosopher What you heard and understood and received was God, God's word speaking to you. So believers are to carefully approach the Lord as we come to receive from him. And we need to remember, we're not uh, meeting with just anybody. We are meeting with the Lord of the universe. Remember when when Moses encounters the Lord, it's found in Exodus in chapter 3. And as he's traveling, he sees he sees a, a shrub that's burning but not consumed. And being the intellectual and curious man that he is, he's drawn aside by such a sight. I mean, when have you ever seen, you know, a shrub, a dry, withered shrub on fire but not being consumed? And so this man's genius is actually being demonstrated, as well as his curiosity to go and see what. This thing is, and as he draws near, remember what happens? The Lord God speaks to him, and God says to him, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. If we had that understanding, if we brought that understanding into every Bible study we have, our lives will change because God's speaking to you. God is speaking to you through his word not just the words that I'm speaking, but even as I'm reading and it's Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he it, it does. You've noticed it, haven't you? You'll read a scripture and it's already speaking to you. You're already saying, I need to do that. You're already saying, I haven't done that. Or God, help me to understand this. That's how I read the Bible. Help me understand and help me do. Help me understand, rightly dividing, but help me do Help me practice my faith. And so that's what you do. When you go to the house of God, you draw near to hear. You don't go there to supply your own opinions. You go there so God can give you his pronouncements. And that's how it works if you're going to grow in your faith. He speaks of the sacrifice of fools. He says, draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools... Is, is speaking of an, a sacrifice or an offering that has been made without obedient faith. Uh, you see, only a fool can think that he can deceive God. So that's why it's called the sacrifice of fools. They think, well, if I give this, he won't notice when I do that. He says, no, you go with a, with a uh, reverent heart, an expectant heart to hear his word, to put it into practice, but don't think that just because you go to the temple, that God's going to smile on you because you showed up. You're offering a sacrifice of fools because you think that you're fooling God. And a fool is a person who doesn't know God. So you think that by giving God something, he's going to be okay with that. All he really wanted was that, when in fact, he wants you. In Hosea 6, verse 6, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In Matthew 15, verse 8, Jesus uh, spoke and said, these people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so that goes along with what Solomon is saying here. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Don't think you're fooling God. Don't offer him something that doesn't have it salted with faith because he has no pleasure in that. He goes on in verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. God is in heaven, you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Do not be rash with your mouth. Well, this actually can be looked at in two basic ways. One, when he says, do not be rash with your mouth, uh, do not be quick to speculate about heavenly things. Um, uh, Facebook is filled with armchair theologians, and, and many times they'll they'll write their ideas. And some of you, if you have Facebook, you'll see that. I see it all the time, and and they just you know, and they just yeah, you know, uh, we, we call them armchair theologians. You know, they they sit back and think deep thoughts and all of that, and then they share them. But they're not always real. They're not always right. And so we need to be quick. Uh, to hear and slow to speak we need to be open to what he's saying when he says do not be rash with your mouth let not your heart utter anything hastily before god you see some people consider themselves deeply theological but they speak for god wrongly they speculate concerning heavenly things and 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 they're trying to uh to explain god to people uh they may have a zeal and there's nothing wrong with having a great zeal, but they need to have a zeal with knowledge. It reminds me when we were going through the book of Acts, it reminds me of, of that young man that we read about in, in the book of Acts by the name of Apollos. He was a young, uh, young man at that time. And when you read in the book of Acts uh, concerning him, uh, he's described as eloquent, he's mighty in the scriptures, uh, he's instructed in the way of the Lord, uh, he was careful to teach accurately, he was bold but he only knew the baptism of John. And so the scripture speaks about after hearing him speak, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately, and he received from them. You see, so there's a, there's a wisdom in being trainable. There's a, a wisdom in, if you're making an error, there's a wisdom in respecting those who've been there before you in order that you might be corrected and, and moved into the right path. There was a young man that was uh, giving me his opinion and, and all, and, and uh, he was incorrect and all, and as I was saying, well, uh, he didn't want to hear, and, and somebody told me later on, and, so, and I thought this was funny, that's why I'm repeating it, but somebody told me later on, you have Bibles older than him, and that's true. Yeah, I do. I have Bibles older than him, and yet he's instructing me in the ways of the Lord when he's been saved all of three years. But if you want to grow in the things of the Lord, one of the things you need to be is trainable. I'm not saying gullible. I'm saying trainable. Apollos, eloquent, was careful. He knew a lot. But what made him great in the kingdom of God is an old couple could take him aside and say to him, you don't know what you think you know. Let me give you more complete knowledge of these things so when you stand and share... You're more developed. And what was Apollos' response? I want to know. There's a wisdom in that. Whenever I meet a young man who says, I just want to learn, I just want to grow, that blesses my heart. There are plenty of young people who want to teach before they're prepared. They want to give a message before they've actually learned that message. I'm not saying that we shouldn't share what we know. I'm just saying grow beyond that be willing to be instructed to go deeper and be very careful that you don't become an armchair theologian. We need to remember that when we speak for God, it is a great responsibility. Isaiah chapter six, verse five, Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, You know, I I, I have not spoken perfectly or correctly in every way. And so that is something we need to be aware of. A second thing is it can apply to making hasty and careless prayers. A prayer should be entered to soberly as well as in the fear of God. Again, we need to remember whom we are speaking to. The secret to acceptable prayer is a prepared heart. That's because the mouth speaks What the heart contains, out of the abundance of the the heart, the mouth will speak. And so we need to be prepared as we come before the Lord and speak to him our prayers. The psalmist says in Psalm 141, verses 1 through 3, beautiful psalm, uh, Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Powerful prayer. He says in verse 3, a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Well, a hard worker sleeps and has many dreams, but even so, a fool is known by his wordy prayers. We bring our petitions to God, and you can do so with few words, because even as we're singing tonight, he knows our needs before we even make them known to him. One of my favorite scriptures, Matthew 6, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Let your words be few, thoughtful, and as you pray, Lord, I believe that you'll have a richer prayer life. In verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So making a vow is making an oath. A vow, an oath is a promise. Promises or vows were not required. You know, in the Jewish law, you were not, Required to make vows, but when you made a vow, you were to honor it. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So when you make a promise, he's saying keep it. So don't make promises to God that you don't intend to keep or delaying to pay it. It's like if you're out there in the ocean and you're starting to cramp up and you know you're going to to drown. I had that happen, probably others in this room. I was out a little further than I should have been and I'm no swimmer. And my legs are cramping, both of them. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it back to shore. And so I remember flopping over on my back and starting to do just a kind of a backstroke kind of thing. But my legs are cramped and I can't, I can't kick. So I'm just basically just going with all of my strength. And you have to know, I was saying, God, help me. God, help me. I'm going to drown. God, help me. God, help me. And you can get into the place where you start saying, I'll live for you. I'll do anything for you. You can get to that place. And then as I'm going, God, I need your help, I feel my feet dragging on the sand. And the first thing I do is I get up and say, all right, and I just run away. I was making all these vows. (laughs) And I forgot all about them for many years. So if you make a vow to the Lord, keep it. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Verse 6, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the works of your hands? And so these are those who are making promises. So when you make that promise uh, to God, uh, don't try to get out of that. Don't say to the priest who came to collect that promise, you said, I'm going to give an offering, don't say to him, Well, um i I made a mistake in doing that he said don't do that kind of thing uh do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin nor say to the messenger of god it was an error so the guy comes to collect the offering you say you know i made a mistake Uh, why should god be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hand you're not going to get away with this verse 7 in the multitude of dreams and and uh, many words there is also vanity fear god um, when he says multitude of dreams most dreams are insignificant and therefore are vain and and they're they're just like empty promises they they have no substance the real answer he's speaking about is to fear god so again fear god and do not make false promises it's better to not make a promise than to make one and not keep it verse 8 If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. And so Solomon saw government officials using authority to serve themselves. So don't be surprised by this. He's saying corruption exists. In in government, pecking orders exist. And the higher people dominate those who are at the lower level. So ultimately, instead of receiving justice, the matter will be lost in red tape as the officials pocket their funds. And so he's making that very clear. Don't be surprised when this takes place. Verse 9, moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. And so when things are done fairly, everybody benefits. Even the king, because the king get something uh, from government that is honest and efficient. Verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Great observation from a very rich man. What he's doing is he's addressing certain myths that, that are uh, related to wealth. And, and the reason why he addresses these illusions is because um, they rob us of God's blessings. You see, for many, possessing great wealth is the goal of their lives. They see the advantages attached to wealth, and they pursue these advantages they, they set a goal. They attempt to work until they achieve their goal. And in their pursuit of wealth, he's saying, you can forget God. And you can, instead of being driven by your faith in God, you can be driven by greed. Now, we use the word greed. Greed is defined as an excessive desire to possess more than what one needs or deserves, especially with respect to material wealth. It's an excessive desire to have more. Somebody said, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. Whatever you feed it is never enough. And that's a good way to put it. You see, when driven by greed, it's easy to forget God because you're you're pursuing personal gain, you're pursuing personal wealth. The children of Israel were told by God that he would bless them, but he also warned them. God promised them, I will bless you, but there will be pitfalls in Deuteronomy 8, 18 and 19. He said it like this, you shall remember the Lord your God For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day, you shall surely perish. He said, I am the one who gives you power to get wealth, but don't forget who gave you that power. You see, Solomon has already shared concerning what he would refer to as a futility of wealth. He said that he had gathered silver, he had gathered gold, he had special treasures of kings. But after doing so, he concluded by saying, I hated all my labor, I have to leave it all behind. So he realized that all of his labors were wasted if they lacked an eternal perspective. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. So Solomon addresses four myths concerning wealth, and these myths are present even today. These are the four myths, and we'll look at them briefly. One, money can buy happiness. Two, money solves every problem. Three, money brings peace of mind Four, money brings security he's actually addressing this first money can buy happiness well what does he say in verse 10 he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase its vanity so when somebody loves money he thinks it can buy happiness he says that's not true when he speaks concerning loving The word love speaks having an appetite for. So he who loves or has an appetite for silver will not be satisfied. The word satisfied means to be fulfilled. The one who loves abundance, the word abundance speaks of wealth. And then he uses the word increase with increase. The word increase speaks of income. An appetite for income will never satisfy you. Many people believe that money produces lasting satisfaction. And because they believe this, their lives are wrapped up in making money. They love it. They think about it. They strive for it, controlled by it. They guard it. Their lives are driven by a desire for it. They think about how they're going to get more of it. But in this pursuit, they lose everything that has value, and they end up with nothing that matters. Luke 12, 15. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said that. This is the one who said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He created all things, yet had no place to rest his head. And yet he didn't need those things because he had something deeper. He said they have left me and now I'm alone, but I'm not alone. He told his father in prayer, he said, for you're with me. See, ultimately what satisfies is a relationship with the Lord because that's something that continues into eternity and the possessions that somebody may give everything everything up for, it has a short shelf life. We know that, but that's what he's pointing out. The second thing he says Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? He addresses the myth that money solves problems. (laughs) We need money, of course, just to survive. But money isn't the solution for every problem. Solomon says the more you have, the more people are around to help you spend it. That's true. Hey, listen, if you win the jackpot of some sort, you're going to have a lot of relatives you didn't even know existed. They will be calling you up. But not only will you have people you didn't know existed trying to hit you up for some cash, the IRS will be there to help you spend it. I promise you. You see, wealth often attracts friends and relatives you didn't know. And friends and relatives will show up and uh, they're going to enjoy your hospitality. That doesn't normally happen to somebody who has no money. In uh, Proverbs 14, 20, it says, the poor man's hated even by his own neighbor. But the rich have many friends. So many who are wealthy never know who sincerely loves them and who is using them. That's why there are some who don't want people to know they have money because there just are too many people who want your money. And there are people that don't allow people to know how much they have. There are others who actually disguise themselves when they go out because there's so many people who will shamelessly come and ask for something from them. So again, if we think that money solves every problem, it really doesn't. Because having a great amount of money produces its own kind of problems. So he warns against that. Verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Uh, The third myth is that money brings peace of mind solomon points out that an ordinary working man sleeps better than the rich man because the rich have security guards fences videos alarm systems on their homes they have bulletproof vehicles and other things around to protect them and their goods very rich people can have insomnia because they're never able to rest and that's true because they never know who's going to come to get their money and so that's the point he's saying keep that in mind and then finally verse 13 There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his own herd. Those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he, eat, he also eats in darkness. He has much sorrow and sickness and anger. And so he addresses the myth that money brings security. A wealthy miser ends up losing his fortune through bad business decisions. He thought that all his problems were solved when he became rich. Yet through poor money management, he ends up with nothing to leave behind. Afraid of letting his money work for him, he became a miser, and he lost it. In the end, he's back where he started from. He has nothing to leave for a son. So Solomon is saying he had trusted in his riches, and the riches let him down. Because he was rich, he trusted those riches as his protection, even his identity. But when he lost it all, he had no parachute to break his fall. According to verse 17, He ends his days in sorrow, sickness, and anger. The fact is, we all die and take nothing with us. And ultimately, we give our account to the Lord. In Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And then finally, 18 through 20, here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils. Under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the, day, on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. A, a person who has learned to trust the Lord He's blessed because of it he doesn't have a lot of stresses because he's trusting in the one who blesses and because he has that he's okay he works he enjoys labor of his hand but altogether he knows this prophet has come because of his relationship to his god and so because that is true he just eats and he drinks what he's produced and lives in faith he rejoices again Because God has blessed him. Verse 20, he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. He's not looking back with regrets or worrying about today because God is blessing his life daily. And that's that's a great thing to learn, isn't it? That God is with you day by day, every day, every moment, every instant. He's with you. He's aware of your needs. He's aware of everything that you desire, and he knows what is best for you. He allows us to speak and ask him, but he knows what he's going to give me because some of the things I've asked him for are things that would wither my soul. You know, he, one of the Psalms speaks of how him giving them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. There are times that you may ask for something where the Lord relents and hands it to you, but it ends up withering your spiritual life. It wasn't something you needed. And so it's always wise to just get up in the morning, say, God, this is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, and I'm going to serve you today. And God says right on, I'll be with you from this moment till you go to sleep. And by the way, when you're asleep, I'm still awake watching you because you belong to me. I can't take my eyes off you. I love you so much. So just enjoy your time with me, and I'll bless you. Now that's a good way to live, and Solomon has seen that.